Today we discuss the story of Team Foxcatcher. From an awkward childhood to a life filled with disappointment and loneliness, John DuPont was truly a bizarre individual. Lacking the necessary talent, he started a wrestling club on his family's farm in the 1980s. From there, booze, cocaine, and paranoia took over his life, leading to him isolating most of his athletes and eventually to the murder of one of the most beloved wrestlers. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. If you thought an episode about an awkward weirdo obsessed with wrestlers was going to be about Mike, stick around. John DuPont is about to one-up his ass. This is Necronomapod. The standoff between a SWAT team and the heir to a fortune continues tonight. Police say John DuPont shot Olympic wrestling great Dave Schultz last night. Now he's facing off with police as they try to negotiate an end to that standoff. Kristen Z is in Pennsylvania. The phone line to the mansion is working. The line was destroyed in a fire here last October, but it was fixed early this morning. Since then, police negotiators have been calling DuPont approximately once every hour from a locked room at the local fire station, which serves as the command center. Officials characterize the conversations as longer than 30 seconds, but they won't say if DuPont is coherent or despondent. He's refusing to come out, and at this point, police have no plans to force him out. So off the top, I want to clarify that this is not an episode about professional wrestling. This is the amateur wrestling world. So real wrestling. Yeah, real wrestling. I, and in the intro, I know we alluded to wrestling, but this is not just another typical Mike episode where I'm talking about professional wrestling and its tragedies. Although I do recommend going back and listening to the Chris Benoit and Bruiser Brody, which I think is only available on Patreon. True. We had an interesting comment on CastBox. Oh. I saw it today. I forgot to send it to you. Really? Yeah. Someone did not like the Chris Benoit episode. Yeah, uh, because he didn't do that. Benoit didn't do yeah, it. He didn't. Do there, it. So oh. we have we have several listeners that are wrestling, like pro wrestling fans, that believe that Chris Benoit did not do it. This person was pretty angry about it. Wow. Yeah, they had some oh. caps. They were, they were typing in all caps wow. at some point. Yeah. Wow. Please submit one piece of evidence <laughs> that shows it was someone other than Chris Benoit. I assure you that evidence does not exist. I want. Like people, I, when I did that episode, people thought like I was happy about it. I fucking loved Chris Benoit. I still watch his matches. I don't want to go back and think of him as a murderer who, yeah. you know, took out his seven-year-old son and his wife. All of the evidence uh, leads to Chris Benoit. There is nothing to support anyone else. What do people think? It's a conspiracy and he was set up. We for, talk about it in the show. Some of the conspiracies. Yeah. They With, think like uh, that was Kevin, Kevin Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan, yeah. Whose wife Benoit later married. Yeah. There was no signs of any forced entry into the home. Mm. No signs of distress. It's something about the text messages. They said something like anybody could have sent those text messages. And That's their evidence? Part, I mean, that, like, part of the evidence. Like anyone, okay. All right. What about the fact that Chris called the WWE multiple times throughout the weekend, making excuses for why he couldn't make live shows? Meanwhile, his wife and kid were already dead. If they were murdered, why would he not have said mm. something? It's a great point, because Mike. Because the, the autopsy report <laughs> showed doesn't fit. that Nancy was dead on, I think it was, maybe it was, I think Nancy died Friday night, Daniel Saturday night or Saturday morning, and then Chris Sunday night. He was making excuses for why he couldn't make events Friday mm. and Saturday. So someone else killed them and broke in and he decided not to call 911 and made excuses that they had food poisoning. I mean, come on. Well, you're jumping to conclusions, Mike. <laughs> Next thing you're going to be saying is Bill Cosby raped all those women. <laughs> Jumping to conclusions. Foster. I'm literally stating facts. I'm literally stating facts. Oh, fucking Bill. I was wondering where we're going to get to that one. 
next thing you're going to be saying is that Bigfoot film is not a person oh, in a rubber suit. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, well, if you didn't like the Chris Benoit episode, okay. Sorry. I spent a lot of time looking into the conspiracies as to why Benoit might not have done it. There is no rational argument or evidence to state that he didn't. Do your do better research, Mike. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. You suck at that. There's an epidemic of people making that argument when they don't agree with your with your opinion, your outcome. Well, in all fairness, I don't know if this guy said I didn't do good research. No, he was just pretty passionate about the fact that Benoit didn't do it. I mean, just in general these days, if people don't agree with what your your point of view on something, they're like, well, do better research. Or if you make an argument, they say, or if you question them on something, they say, well, research it for yourself. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe I did, pal. Hmm. Maybe you should redo that uh, episode, Mike, and look at this evidence you've clearly glossed over so haphazardly. Yeah. I, hey, <laughs> if someone has evidence, I'd love to see it because I cannot find anything as to why Benoit might not have. But, you know, I'd be happy to do a part two where I come out and say, I don't think he did it. <laughs> New evidence has come forth. Mm. You know who did kill, did kill someone? John Dupont. There In, are witnesses. Indisputable, I to think. To the crime. Mm. So anyways, I just wanted to clear that up off the top. This is not, this is a, you know, amateur freestyle Greco-Roman wrestling type story. Uh, still true crime. And I think looking at the uh, coverage we did for the month or we're going to do for the month of July... This is the only confirmed murder we're covering in July. What? Isn't that odd? Yeah, that's true. So, I don't know. Hmm. Put that in your weeds pipe and smoke it. <laughs> weeds pipe. <laughs> Whatever you use to smoke a weed. I don't know what you guys do. Your recreational activities. But anyways, that's all I had off the top. You guys got anything? I'm going to be taking over this show. So, if you guys got anything, now's your time to freestyle. No, I don't really have anything on my mind. Mm -mm. I'm good. Uh, all right. Ian and I are just going to veg out here and let you talk for the whole thing. Please we're not really going to say much. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, we're recording this on a, a Sunday night, which is odd for us. So we're all a little bit out of our, uh, like, in a funk. Got this, wrestling on the TV. Yeah, we do. Pay-per-view. <laughs> Professional wrestling. <laughs> not the stuff we're going to be covering tonight. So we're still nerding out a little bit. Tights versus singlets, right? Well, Kurt Angle might have something to say about that. <laughs> Anyways, should I dive in? Yeah. Do I have your permission, Dave? You want my permission? <laughs> <laughs> Dive in like it's a new freshman at the fraternity house. <laughs> Boom. Zoom, zoom, zoom. Uh, so off the top, I just want to throw out some of the sources I used for this episode. Uh, there's two. There's one good documentary and then another really good documentary. ESPN did one of their 30 for 30s on this story. It's called The Prince of Pennsylvania. Um, I recommend checking that out. And then Netflix has a documentary called Team Foxcatcher, which is really well done. Uh, it's it's probably the best documentary that I've seen on this. Uh, I also use the National Wrestling Hall of Fame website for this. And then I read a book. Well, it's called a book. It was more of a pamphlet. It was like 75 pages called Wrestling with Madness by Tim Huddleston. And uh, that was my main source I kind of used for this episode. So I did research. <laughs> Anyways, all right, let's dive into it. David Les Leslie Schultz was born on June 6, 1959 in Palo Alto, California, to parents Philip Gary Schultz and Dorothy Jean St. Germain. He had a, a younger brother, Mark, and two half-siblings. We'll get to Mark more in a little bit here. 
Schultz began wrestling in middle school after spending much of his childhood being bullied for being overweight and for having dyslexia. He would use this as like a motivation to go on and achieve a lifetime of success in men's freestyle and Greco-Roman wrestling. Mike, can you explain the difference in freestyle or between freestyle and Greco-Roman wrestling? I could. In 1977, as a senior at Palo Alto High School, (laughs) Schultz... You could, but you chose not to, apparently. I answered the question that was asked. (laughs) Uh, Let me me rephrase that. Would you mind explaining the difference? Uh, I'll be honest. I I don't know. Do you? Did you look it up? No. God damn. Uh, No. It's two different different sports in the Olympics, right? I believe so. Two different styles of wrestling. Right. And I don't even know if both even because of wrestling like fluctuates whether or not like it hasn't been in the Olympics the last I don't think couple years or what has it wrestling in general at all. Like, yeah. They, like they had been caught. Really? Yeah. Uh, it was a big thing in the you know, the the wrestling community that it didn't make the Olympics or mm. maybe it make way for synchronized swimming. Probably. I mean, you got to have that, right? No, absolutely. Uh, no, I will admit that I actually don't know a lot about the amateur wrestling world. Mm. Um how I was pegged with this episode, I'll never know. But I got it, so I did my best. I think Actually, Julie, I think I volunteered. Yeah, make it. a note to isolate how I was pegged. I'm gonna pull that <laughs> out later. I think the difference is, or at least in my mind, what I would think is that freestyle wrestling starts on the ground. You, is that what it is? Yeah, and okay. Greco Roman is standing on the. Oh, okay, I th- okay. I think I don't know. Every time you watch UFC, and so they have somebody up against the cage and getting underhooks and stuff they always compliment their greco-roman maybe we'll do some in in uh, mid-show uh, researching and we'll come back at the end of the show and discuss there you go as right. i continue here either way just know that dave schultz was good at both of them excellent yeah i gonna fuck around with that guy in 1977 as a senior at palo alto high school schultz wrestled two weight classes above his normal division managing to pin all of his opponents in that year's state championship with the exception of his final opponent, who he still managed to defeat on points at a score of 12 to one and win the state championship. Later that year, he won his first national title at the U S national open Greco Roman championships, where he also won the award for the most falls in the least amount of time. Dave Schultz's senior year credentials is considered by most experts to be the most successful senior year in U S high school wrestling history. Sounds pretty damn impressive. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, Alan Freed, who many consider to be the greatest high school wrestler of all time, went to our high school, Mike. That's right. I always forget that. And then he went up and... Uh, he went to did he do Oklahoma Olympics? or something, did he do that? too. Yeah, I think yeah. so, yeah. He graduated. I went to school with him. He was in my class. Our The high school we went to is pretty prominent in the state of Ohio for uh, its wrestling. As you can tell, Dave and I did not participate <laughs> in that uh, endeavor. <laughs> not even a little bit. No. Nope. Uh, in college at both Oklahoma State and Oklahoma, Schultz would become a three-time NCAA All-American. And in 1982, he became the NCAA champion at the 167-pound weight class. In 1984, Schultz qualified for and represented the United States at the Olympic Games, where he would go on to win a gold medal at the 163-pound weight class. At the same Olympics, his younger brother, Mark, would also go on to win a gold medal at the 180-pound weight class. To this day, the Schultz brothers are the only American brothers to win both a world championship and an Olympic gold medal in wrestling. It's pretty impressive, huh? A lot of talent in that family. And a lot of cauliflower ears as well. Did they have the cauliflower ears? 
I know Mark Schultz does. You see him now in these interviews, and whew, you want like some ranch with all that. That's a. <laughs> I spit up my drink. That's a disturbing <laughs> look, man. I, I don't know. I mean, he's a badass dude, but yeah, the, I mean, those wrestlers. Whew, I don't envy that. Mm-mm. And it's like them with the cauliflower ear and the jujitsu guys with like the broken knuckles and their fingers and their Ugh. toes. Like, uh, it's brutal in UFC. A couple of fights when guys' cauliflower ears popped. Yeah. Oh, that just bleeds and bleeds. Yeah. yeah. Like cartilage comes out of it <sighs> and stuff. Is it from scraping across the mat or is it some sort of bacterial infection? Aren't there a couple different ways you can get that cauliflower ear? I always thought the bacterial one was more like ringworm. Mm-hmm. No, I don't know. I don't know. I always thought it was like a like the contact, yeah. like the, the, the breaking the, the cartilage. Yeah, to like and it bleeds into the ear and like pulling your head out of like a headlock and stuff. Like yeah, you pull your head back, your ears bend. And they still wear headgear, right? Like yeah, that's what's yeah. crazy. That's a that's a it's a weird looking thing. That's a man sport. Hence, <laughs> I'll watch professional wrestling on TV. And, <laughs> Whew, they're, they're tough dudes. Anyways, they both won Olympic gold medal and world championships. In in all, between 1980 and 1996, Dave Schultz would go on to win seven world championships and one Olympic gold medal. His quest for an eighth world title and a second Olympic medal would eventually be cut short by his untimely death. And we'll be back for part two next week. <laughs> Mike likes to break his up into multiple parts. Yeah. <laughs> So, it's going to be 10, 20 minute episodes. <laughs> this eight pages of notes is going to be 20 episodes. <laughs> uh, so focusing a little bit on Dave Schultz, the person, and this is kind of where most people in the wrestling community really uh, are drawn to Dave. Uh, it's been said that for all of his achievements on the mat, he's best known as wrestling's greatest friend and diplomat across the nation and around the world. He was always one of those guys that had time to talk. He always wore a smile. He had sportsmanship. His sportsmanship transcended national boundaries. He even learned Russian so that he could communicate with other wrestlers and learn more uh, about the business or or about the sport and uh, just kind of bond with them. Uh, He even uh, uh, named his son Alexander after a friendly rival from the USSR. And again, this was like in the 80s when, you know, they were. That's pretty cool. Yeah. By his own admission, Schultz, quote, wasn't the greatest athlete in wrestling, but he was one of the most intelligent wrestlers in the history of the sport. Schultz once told one of his mentors, quote, I cheated. I learned how to wrestle. And by that, it meant like he learned how to use people's bodies against them, how to use their momentum. Uh, I Kurt Angle recently on one of his podcasts described it as like Dave had like even though he wasn't an old man, he had old man strength. Like he was just like a, a smaller wiry guy who just could overpower anybody mm. just because he learned how to manipulate people's bodies. He was respected by everyone in the sport of wrestling and was seen as a happy, humble friend to all. He was also the ultimate family man. He married his wife, Nancy, in 1980, and together they had two kids, Alexander and Danielle, who he loved dearly and always made time for, even when he was training. While still focused on his own career, Schultz spent a lot of time coaching other wrestlers as well. Throughout his life, he spent time coaching at the University of Oklahoma, Stanford University, and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. One of the young wrestlers whose Schultz would have a hand in sh- whose career Schultz would have a hand in shaping was that of Kurt Angle, future Olympic gold medalist and WWE wrestler. In the early 1990s, Dave Schultz accepted an invitation to become a coach at the highly popular Team Foxcatcher, a wrestling team his brother Mark had previously been training with. Foxcatcher was started by a very eccentric, bizarre, and obsessive billionaire named John Dupont. Was he actually a billionaire? DuPont's pretty damn big, right? 
I looked it up because mm. I initially saw Millionaire, and then I looked up what the Duponts were worth, and I saw Billion. The family, it's actually, but the it's family. all split. Yeah. The family is worth a you know it was a billion dollar family. Yeah. Um, his actual, I, I I don't know, but they uh you know, as we'll get into in a minute here, this family was worth a ton. John E. Dupont was born November twenty second, nineteen thirty eight, to parents Jean and William Dupont. The DuPont family had become wealthy during the War of 1812 when their gunpowder business became extremely profitable. Then, during the Civil War, the DuPonts became the Union Army's chief supplier of gunpowder and explosives. By the 20th century, the DuPont business would eventually expand to create nylon, polyester, Kevlar, Teflon, and Lycra spandex. And a fun note, in order to keep their wealth completely within the family, the DuPonts had a practice of only marrying their own cousins. However, this practice was uh, seemed to slow down by the end of the 19th century and pick up substantially in Arkansas and Alabama, and Mississippi <laughs> and never allegedly slow down. <laughs> so they really wanted they kept uh, tight that money. Can you imagine having a gunpowder business and then war breaks out? Yeah. And you're like, you're like fuck hmm. yeah, <laughs> this might be all right for us. <laughs> and DuPont's still around today. Yeah. They're poisoning. Uh was it Parkersburg, West Virginia, where they poisoned all the, the water and air supply? How dare you get political, sir? <laughs> this is about wrestling. <laughs> that uh, that dark water book and movie with... Uh, no, it's fine. Coincidentally enough, Mark Ruffalo was uh, oh. about DuPont, wasn't it? And Mark Ruffalo was in, uh, Dave's alluding to the Foxcatcher film that yeah. Steve Carell, Mark Ruffalo, and uh, Channing Tatum were in. Yeah, but DuPont's done some not great stuff to uh, people. Hmm. Next, you're going to tell us Flint water. Flint doesn't have drinking water, but that's fine. <laughs> Only in America. Any hoodles. John DuPont grew up in a very well-off family and was raised on a horse farm in Newtown Square, Pennsylvania, called Lysiter Hall. As he grew up, he became a very awkward-looking young man with a large nose, yellow teeth, and a lack of chin. He was, withdraw- he was a withdrawn young man who didn't associate much with others. When attending an exclusive private high school, he realized that even among the social elite as his family was, he didn't fit in. So he was just a loner from the mm. get go. You know, and also an extremely just ugly, weird looking individual. Well, which pro, is not his fault. Well, pro tip if you don't have a chin, grow a beard. There you go. Yeah. Fun fact I don't have a chin at all. There's just a big crater there. You guys don't know that, though. <laughs> it's true. Don't know. I overcompensate for my lack of a chin. Uh, Oh, I was going to say, going back to pro wrestling again, I'm tying this back. Kevin Nash has always had a a goatee because he said he has a weak chin. Hmm. It doesn't look good. Doesn't look manly. Yeah. Like, like, and I guess like you mean like a prominent, like it almost just kind of looks like it just goes into your neck sort of. And that's, you know, John DuPont was just a kind of odd looking guy. And it, you know, it didn't help that he had worse behavior and was kind of sheltered away from everybody because they were, you know, they had millions and millions and maybe billions of dollars. Sure. You remember when you had to shave your beard a couple years ago? I was just going to say that. He was walking by my house a couple years ago. It was right after I met him, too. Yeah. And uh, I was, like, he waved, like, like said hi to me. I'm like, all right, hi, dude. Like, I didn't realize it was him because I never seen him without a beard before. You mean the same guy, Ian, who, what was it, a few weeks ago, drove right past me as you waved to me walking to Dave's house? <laughs> And didn't recognize one of your best friends in the world. You literally look at my face when we're recording twice a week for the last two and a half years. You waved to me and drove right by and did not realize it was me. I would never guess that you wouldn't recognize Dave without a beard. I was real confused for a second. Unreal. 
So DuPont withdrew. He became a loner. He didn't have friends and he never dated. But he did realize he didn't need to make friends because people can be bought. He graduated from high school in 1957, and a few years later, he began attending the University of Miami. It was during this time at Miami that DuPont began focusing on athletics. It was his dream to become an Olympic athlete. However, he lacked talent in pretty much all sports. <laughs> yeah, meat is my dream, too, and I like talent in all sports. <laughs> and, Except curling. I might be able to, if I start practicing, I can make the Olympic team in curling, so. maybe. Yeah. Drinking beers. Know. Drinking beers. Yeah, you can drink beer and do curling. I just mean Olympic sport, drink beer. Uh, And to be fair, he wasn't a bad athlete, but he was nowhere near Olympic level. So, you know, it it wasn't that he sucked, but you're not going to make the Olympics. Yeah. After leaving school, DuPont, using his checkbook, managed to get a spot on the prestigious Santa Clara Swim Club in California, where he would be able to train with swimmers who were preparing for the 1964 Olympics. Did he just give people money or did he... Like kind of donate the stuff to organizations that he would. I mean, he would in a lot of situations donate like he set up museums. He was really big into birds. He was big into stamp or he started a stamp collection. Uh, uh, So he he would donate money. But when he wanted it, he would donate with a a caveat of, oh, by the way, hey, can I come train with you? You know, here's here's half a million dollars Mm -hmm. for your program. I'm going to show up with my Speedo and jump in your water. (laughs) As the Olympic Games approached, DuPont was forced with the realization that he just couldn't cut it in the swimming world. His teammates, however, sat him down and told him he should try his hand at the pentathlon. Given that he grew up on a horse farm, his family built their fortune. I guess we should say the pentathlon is it's an uh, it's a ridiculous Olympic sport that involves horseback riding, shooting firearms, swimming, running and fencing (laughs) all in one. Now, how it exactly works, I'm not even sure the exact rules. There's some but weird like, Olympic things where they pair stuff like that. Like, yeah. who came up with that? I mean, and then like, also, could you make, a, a, you know, a more of a sport for like the wealthiest of the wealthy people? Yeah, right. Like, they're like, we need a sport for like white people where we could just <laughs> win all the time. I know. Let's do this, 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 and this. Fencing. <laughs> So what's the winter Olympics one where you cross country ski for a little bit, then you stop and shoot and then you cross country ski a little right. more. Then you shot, you take a, you do a shot of fireball and then you move on. And then like you have to, you have to Greco Roman wrestle yeah. a penguin. Yeah. The biathlon is that what that's called? I don't that's know. So fucking weird. Fun fact. I would watch an Olympic sport where you have to wrestle a penguin and I would watch the penguin like peck the fuck out of a person. <laughs> like it's on ice. So the penguin has a little bit of an advantage yeah. given that humans have a size. Uh, you would you watch you would you would watch that right for sure. Penguin is kicking the shit of out course. of course <laughs> with Morgan Freeman uh, narrating. <laughs> He's the announcer, like yeah. in that Penguin movie. They mute all the sound of the crowd, and it's just Morgan Freeman announcing <laughs> as like a penguin pecks a human to death. <laughs> all right, so the pentathlon. You know, he started training for that. He already had. Uh, you know, he grew up on a horse farm. He knew how to ride. His family built their fortune on firearms. He knew how to shoot. He was already a swimmer. He had that. He just had to start running and learning how to fence. Uh, he built running trails all throughout his the, the family farm just so that he could start preparing for that, uh, you know, and then started taking lessons on fencing and learning how to do it. I bet fencing's fun. That'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? I'd give it a try, I guess. I'd try that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Seemed, I always thought it would seem cool. You get a point if you poke them. Yeah. Right? That's why I gave myself points for in college. <laughs> <laughs> Ended up with 
four million three hundred sixty-eight thousand two hundred twenty-one points and a half. Anyways. So he started doing the pentathlon and after having some initial early success, like he won a national competition in Australia, which if the country's made up, I think, you know, maybe the competition was because he hosted the 1967 national pentathlon championship on his farm and he wound up finishing 14th. When it came time to qualify for one of three spots on the 1968 Olympic team, DuPont finished 21st out of 22 qualifiers. At least his, it wasn't 22nd. Yeah. He was not. His <laughs> Olympic dreams were officially over. It must be nice to just be able to buy your way into whatever you want to do, you know? And that's, we're kind of laying the groundwork for how he, like, the, lived the rest of his life. Like, yeah. any problem, I can make it go away. If I want to fit in, I'll, I'll buy my way in. I mean, his family was prominent. You can search Sean DuPont. There's pictures of him with, like, presidents because the, his family was very well off. And, right. you know, they donated money. And, and he was a philanthropist. He gave money. And, you know, but it was his way. He was doing it to try to be accepted and to try to fit in. And then he would later learn, like, hey, you know, money can also kind of help you if you're in a situation, too. So... That's usually the case. Yeah. It's interesting to note here that in 1974, a girl named Patty Hearst, who came from a very wealthy family, was abducted. And this became a major news story across the country. The whole incident greatly disturbed DuPont. And this was the start of his paranoia, which would only increase with his age and with his drinking and drug use. Is that on our list? Uh, Sim- Symbionese Lib- Liberation Army story? Yeah. I'll have to do that one day. It's that's interesting. That's really interesting because uh, Jim Jones got involved in that whole Patty Hearst stuff. Oh, what did he do? He was setting up like a foundation to try and look good, but then on the back end of it, he was, you know, all about the communist stuff. (gasps) So he was financing those guys? No, he was just in support of it. Like there's tapes Mm. of him in support of it, but then on the public end of it, he was... Sure. Interesting. But he was all about the whole Patty Hearst stuff. Hmm. That's a crazy story. I'll have to get into that someday. So it really fucked with DuPont's head, and this made him paranoid. Uh, he had all of the Lysiter farm gated and secured. The only way in and out of his property at this point would now be through a security gate at the front entrance. DuPont also decided to use his financial influence now to get cozy with the Newtown police. Over the years, he would donate millions of dollars to the police department, providing them with the latest and greatest body armor, offered them the use of his personal helicopter and allowed them to use his farm as a shooting range. While the police stated this did not win DuPont any special treatment, he was given a police radio and a badge as a, quote, honorary officer. And as we'll later discuss, he was treated differently whenever shit went down. Um, You know, and, you know, there's video of him out there shooting with the police, like on his range. Mm. And, you know, there were some officers lived on his property. He had multiple houses on on this farm. He would house some of the police officers. So, you know, it's almost like a like an Epstein type thing where, you know, you're 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 not paying their wage, but you're living on his farm. He's protecting you with his body armor, a helicopter for your use. So are you suggesting you can curry favor with the police by giving them money? I would never. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> I'm simply I'm stating what, to clarify. what John DuPont did. Uh, in 1982, DuPont met a 29-year-old woman named Gail Wenk. They would marry the next year in 1983. However, the marriage would not last long. DuPont's paranoia led to him trying to control Wenk's every move. 
On top of that, his drinking was increasing, and on multiple occasions, DuPont would physically abuse her and threaten to kill her, telling her that nobody would ever find her body, and even if they did, nothing would happen because he controlled the police. Their marriage was annulled after 90 days, and they officially divorced in 1987. Well, that escalated quickly. Very quick. I was reading a little bit about that. He was accusing yeah. her of being a Russian spy and, and whatnot, which I think we'll see later in the story. He started know. accusing everybody. Yeah. You know, you know, anyone that is his head like he was he was a sick individual, but he thought everybody was out to get him. Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, would hold her down and, and like hold a gun to her head or choke her and threaten her. And, you know, she she put up with it the first few times and then eventually was like, OK, this is not the guy that she probably pinned him because he I mean, he came in 21st, 21st, out of 22nd. <laughs> well, the pentathlon, there was no wrestling in that. <laughs> we'll get into his wrestling career here in a minute. So by now in his 40s, DuPont was ready to move on to his next athletic endeavor in 1986. And Ian, this goes back to what you asked. He donated millions of dollars to Villanova University so they could build a new basketball arena in return. Oh, by the way, it was called like DuPont Arena. In well, return, of course. DuPont asked that they start up a wrestling program and name him the head coach, even though he only had one year of wrestling experience, which dated back to his freshman year of high school. And also Villanova was like, we, people aren't even asking for a wrestling program. Like, OK, like you're not going to turn down millions of dollars. So they're like, OK, we'll do it. DuPont had always loved the sport of wrestling, but his family wanted him to be successful in what they considered a more upscale, non-barbaric sport. Like, like you know, badminton or something. Polo. Sure. Fencing. You know, Fencing. They came from you know, horse riding. You <laughs> yeah. know, they were into all that. And the pentathlon probably was perfect for him. Uh, now that all those other avenues, though, were closed, he went all in on wrestling. He went about putting together the best coaching lineup he could, including hiring Mark Schultz, Dave's younger brother. The program at Villanova, however, was not long for this world as it shut down after only two years due to DuPont's erratic behavior, disregard for NCAA rules, and his excessive drinking. At one point during this time, DuPont was driving while extremely drunk, hit a guy with his car, and drove from the scene of the accident saying he had a plane to catch. Given his status and wealth, DuPont was only forced to pay a $42.50 fine. And fortunately, the victim survived the hit. And they said that nothing ever went further because the victim incidentally never filed any charges. Really? Yeah. That's weird because mm. special treatment like that never <laughs> happens to wealthy people. Mm. Very surprised by that. Now, yeah. uh, the disregard for NCAA rules is that like I heard he was just going around like you can. And I don't know the specifics, but like he was just offering money to other college wrestlers should just leave and come over to Villanova. <laughs> like, just illegally yeah. recruiting people. Like, you know, just come on over. Yeah, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, no. But, th and this was also a time, you know, his drinking was up. He probably was started dab dabbling into cocaine at this time. And it was just all funny. You know, he can make anything go away. All the problems. In 1988, DuPont's mother had passed away, leaving him as the sole, leaving him in sole possession of Lysiter Hall Farm. With the wrestling program at Villanova shut down, DuPont decided to change the name of the farm to Foxcatcher Farm and turn the property into an elite wrestling club. Where does the name come from? So it was actually named after his dad's uh, horse racing team, which was called Foxcatcher yeah, back in the okay. day. Um, so he changed the name to Foxcatcher Farm and... Uh, was going to turn the property into an elite wrestling club. He built a state-of-the-art facility and began recruiting the best wrestlers in the world to come train for him. What's interesting is that it really wasn't that difficult for DuPont to recruit the top wrestlers in the world, 
as up to that point, there was no money in the wrestling business. I mean, unless you're going like professional, but for like actual, you know, the athletes who are training for the world competitions and the Olympics, there was no money in it. Uh, they were essentially living hand to mouth while training, while their competitors, the Soviets, were being paid salaries and given health insurance while training. Uh, you know, and so the the American wrestlers were just living, you know, making ends meet while trying to train. You know, that was a problem with a lot of Olympic sports back then. I mean, yeah. the Soviets were paying all of them, and you know, quote amateur wrestler, you know, amateur athletes, and until they changed right. all those rules, it's like if you remember basketball before, like you know, professional, you know, before the. Olympic basketball team was full of NBA players <laughs> like back the when dream professional team. athletes couldn't <laughs> dream actually team, be in the Olympics. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Because I've I've had this debate with many people. It's a little like, silly. I don't know. But you have to. I get. Go ahead. I'm, I'm I asked you a question. No, go, go, go ahead. So I understand that you want, you know, amateur. You want it to be, you know, to a fair playing field. But at the same time, like if you if you're trying to win a gold medal, I want to know that I'm the best in the world. And like, so like I look at hockey, for example, well, okay, you won a gold medal as an amateur in the Olympics, but the best in the world playing the NHL, I want to play against them and win a gold medal. I don't know. I mean, it's supposed to be an amateur kind of thing, but, you know, but then the really, Russian bloc was, you, you know, essentially supporting making them professional athletes. Well, yeah, they found that whole way time. So, it. yeah, so it's not, it was never fair. So I can, I think it, even the playing field. But I just feel like if, you know, if you're a basketball player, like, and you win a gold medal, you, I mean, you really know you're, you're not the best in the but world. it's supposed to be an amateur competition, though. I don't know. I yeah. Just, I, and that's fine, too. But then I just look, think the gold medal kind of feels different, right? Like, you're the best. Okay, so you're the best who's not good enough to get paid to play. Well, but only a few of those have actual professional athletes sure right? oh, i'm so not it's, talking it's about a, all the olympic yeah you know, I understand. like there's no professional gymnast you know right. what i mean it comes to like basketball it's and just a hockey, few situations probably just yeah. basketball i don't know there's don't no correct know. answer i don't know right. what the answer is but you mean there's the no Olympics. professional swim league you can go watch it like <laughs> <Yeah>. the q <laughs> the psl right. professional swim league live <laughs> i mean historically it's supposed to be amateur sports and i i you know Watch Michael the Phelps <laughs> smoke a blunt and then <laughs> swim 500 meters in 12 seconds. So I, I don't know what the right answer is there, but yeah. the Russians were skirting those rules but at this anyway. Time, so sure. what's the difference? So the point is, at this time, you know, the Americans were legit amateurs. They they were, you know, living off whatever they could they could to get by training when they could. Like, you know, Dave Schultz, we're going to get to in a minute, was coaching on the side mm -hmm. while trying to train in whatever facilities he could. Now DuPont's building this Olympic style training facility, offering them, you know, well, we'll, we'll get into it, offering them lodging and access to his mansion and, you know, paying for whatever they might need. And, uh, you know, obviously it was easy to attract wrestlers to that. Yeah, I mean, he was evening the playing field as a, as a right. benefactor, just like the Russian state and all those Eastern Bloc countries were doing. And in DuPont's mind, like this was his like acceptance. You know, these people now liked him. He he was around Olympic athletes, which he always wanted to be. You know, he considered himself almost like the head coach of Team Foxcatcher. Again, yeah. with one year freshman high school wrestling <laughs> experience. And he's bringing in like Dave Schultz, who won an Olympic gold medal in 1984. He's like Al Bundy. I played high school football. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or if I'm uh, fucking Napoleon Dynamite, I could throw a football clear over those. <laughs> <laughs> fucking sidearm. Was it Uncle Rico? <laughs> 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 
1989, top wrestlers from all over the country began coming to Foxcatcher Farm to train. One of them was Dave Schultz. Dave's brother Mark had been with DuPont since joining him at Villanova a few years earlier. And although Mark experienced some success in his career training in DuPont's program, DuPont's antics were starting to take their toll on Mark, and he began to see DuPont as a toxic individual. Not only was DuPont paranoid and an alcoholic, he was doing excessive amounts of coke, offering it to the wrestlers, and behaving very oddly, like becoming obsessed with Mark and wanting to control his entire life. DuPont also began setting up recording cameras on random parts of his property. He would then sit there and rewatch hours of random footage, like literally hours of just the trees blowing in the wind or the clouds passing by in the sky. And DuPont was convinced he would see things or figures or shadows moving in these in, in the video. He would make other people watch him with with him, but nobody ever saw anything of concern other than DuPont. So anyways, Dave Schultz was set to begin his journey at Foxcatcher as Mark's, Mark Schultz decided to retire and move on. Did Mark try to warn Dave at all? Yeah, Mark about coming into this. Mark situation. tried telling him, like, "Hey, this is this is not a good environment. This guy's weird. Mm-hmm. He's paranoid. You know, he's toxic to your training. Like, it, it's just something's off here." But again, this was a, a facility that nobody ever had access to before. There were still a bunch of wrestlers there in training. Uh, you know, th- and and they were thriving, like they were doing well. But you know. You just had to get past the bullshit of the pot. Like he would he would have you over and, uh, you know, like into his mansion at, on the property and like make you like listen to the walls and like tell you like there's a guy in that wall. He's going to try to come out and kill me tonight, but I'll shoot <laughs> like just random stuff like that. Like if you could put up with that because mm-hmm. it wasn't 24 seven, but he would go through like just periods and you know where he would just, you know, go manic or something would happen and he would just be so paranoid. And if you can get past that. You know, then other than that, he was a reserved, quiet guy and he was paying you and you had a place to stay and you had all access to this facility. So which doesn't come along every day. So when you get something like that, it's hard to turn down. Sure. Right. You know, and so Mark tried telling Dave, like, hey, this is why I'm out of here. But Dave's like, look, I I I packed up my family where we committed to to DuPont Mm. to come here and, you know, I'm going to make it work. And, And and as we'll get to in a minute, you know, Dave, Dave. And DuPont had a good, you know, bond with each other. So, yeah. Did you watch the 30 for 30? No. I, believe I watched the Netflix one. The 30 for 30, I believe, is the one that's all done, like, with Mark. Okay. Like, in the documentary. So, Mark kind of tells the whole story of everything, which is really good if you want to hear it from his perspective. Right. Um, so, I don't think he was even a part of the Netflix one. I don't remember. I don't remember yeah. seeing him he in wasn't that at even, all. A lot of the people who are interviewed in it and, and some of them, you know, like, uh, uh, was it Dan Shade who we'll talk about here later? He was a part of both, but Mark was only a part of the ESPN one. And he tells a lot about his experiences with uh, with John DuPont. If you watch the Foxcatcher movie, they allude to DuPont almost being homosexual and like coming on to the wrestlers. But there's I've not seen anything that was like proven for sure that he was like that or Mm. that he would, you know, make advances on anybody. Um, But they allude to that in the Foxcatcher movie a lot. Um, So anyways, take that for what it is. Either way, DuPont was, you know, he became like kind of obsessed with these with some of these guys because this was the life he wanted to live. He wanted to be one of these top athletes and he was lonely and a bit deranged and you know, figured he paid for everybody. So 
He can do what he wants. He can do what he wants. Is there something interfering with your happiness? Something keeping you from achieving your 2020 goals? Let's face it. These are certainly trying times. From being cooped up inside your home to wondering how you're going to pay next month's bills, we're all experiencing some form of stress or strain on our mental health. And for that, BetterHelp is here for us. BetterHelp is an online mental health provider that will assess your needs and match you up with your own licensed professional therapist. The best part? No waiting rooms. That's a pretty big deal if you're as impatient as I am. BetterHelp is a safe and private online environment that will have you communicating with a counselor within the first 24 hours. And once you've begun, you can send your counselor a message at any time, always getting a helpful response in a timely manner. You even have the ability to schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all from the comfort of your very own couch. BetterHelp is available worldwide and has a broad range of expertise available, including licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflict, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Not happy with your counselor? No worries. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches and makes it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Remember, everything you share with your BetterHelp counselor is completely confidential. And while it's not a crisis line, it is a convenient, professional, and affordable way to seek the help you deserve. Financial aid is even offered to those who qualify. Want to hear how BetterHelp assisted people just like you? Check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. Look, we here at Necronomapod want you to start living a happier life. So, as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com necro. Join over 1 million people already taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, betterhelp.com slash necro. Dave Schultz moved his family into one of the homes located on Foxcatcher Farm, and he and DuPont hit it off immediately. As we stated, Dave was a genuinely kind and nice individual. He felt bad for DuPont and saw a lot of himself in DuPont. Wrestling for Dave was an outlet from the bullying and the dyslexia he endured as a child, and he believed that wrestling was an outlet for DuPont and his loneliness. The two shared a bond for many years, and DuPont found himself really fond of Dave. Dave Schultz supported him, validated him, and helped train him to learn more about the sport of wrestling. DuPont, now at the age of 55, even began wrestling in senior competitions. Oftentimes, his Foxcatcher teammates would pay off his opponents to let DuPont win. <laughs> if you watch some of the videos of these competitions, <laughs> it's really uncomfortable and weird. Like, Lay on top of them. Lay on top yeah, of them. It's like just two old men like in singlets rolling around on a mat, like not knowing what they're... Well, yeah. like... And maybe the competitor knows what he's doing, but like maybe he was paid off. So he's like, I'm literally laying here and DuPont doesn't know how to pin me. But yeah, just odd. And, you know, just trying to help validate DuPont. And, and anytime DuPont would win, like it was the greatest thing of his life. Like he was so proud and mm. it was such a badge of honor for him. All that money and you can do anything in the whole world. And like, that's what you want to. I mean, that's I get, your deal. I get the Olympic thing. Like, that's cool. Yeah. But then like. Just give them the, the like the platform and then just step back, you yeah, know, like yeah. wear your jersey to the the, the competitions and stand like in the mm. owner's box or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? As the years went on, DuPont's paranoia was getting worse. 
He believed that his, quote, enemies were out to get him and were watching his every move, even while they while he was inside his own home. He was sure that somebody was going to kill him in his sleep. Because of this, DuPont started to withdraw from the Foxcatcher team. He didn't trust anyone and believed maybe even somebody on the team was out to get him. He just needed to figure out who this was. Was he getting any sort of mental health treatment? No. Whatsoever. Nothing. So, at different times, the wrestlers would approach him about treatment for like his alcoholism. He would he would write it off or say, no, my family will disown me if they know I had a problem. They, uh, you know, they would take away my money and, you know, however it was it was set up. So the people reached out to help him in general. But he, you know, he didn't want it. He shrugged it off and, you know, played it off like yeah. he was fine. Uh, and then, and, and, you know, they were careful because he was a wild card. And if if you came at him like that, you might now be looked at as the enemy. Yeah, right. You know, and as we're going to get into here in a bit, like he, you know, he was not afraid to approach people that he thought were against him. What age was, did we say what age he was when all that paranoia started? So that would have been, here's my notes. He was born in 1938 and this, and that, that abduction was in 1974. Mm. What's the math on that day? 30 something years old? 36. Yeah. 36. So he was 36 years old. You can clean that up however you want. What's the abduction? What was that? That was the the um Patty Hearst. The Patty Hearst. Oh. When okay. he started going paranoid. Got or it. like one of the first early <clears throat> tells that he was going paranoid. So he was in his mid-30s when it okay. when it started. But again, we don't know because he had such a sheltered life. He didn't really associate with many people. You know, who knows what was going on. He wasn't exactly open about right. this prior to. So in 1993, DuPont hired Aegis Security to search his property for these alleged enemies that DuPont thought was were hiding in the walls of his home and to dig up the ground on his property to look for secret tunnels that DuPont thought his enemies were using to break into his farm. And from what I read, uh, Aegis and especially DuPont's uh, private security officer through Aegis, uh, Patrick Goodell, they didn't necessarily play into his fears, but they accommodated every request he had because they knew they were going to be making money. Cha-ching! So, oh, you yeah. have people on your walls? Uh, absolutely. We'll look into that. <laughs> we'll get you. rid of those. Let's take down your walls. <laughs> oh, you want us to dig up your land and over there? Of course we will, because you want to be the safest you can be. Oh, yeah. So, like, you know, that that just helped, you know, perpetuate his his paranoia and think, OK, see, these guys are on my side. They understand. They get it. Yeah. In actuality, you know, they just they knew they could just get that. Bank account, Absolutely. you know, they can run them dry. In total, DuPont spent over $200,000 on Aegis services investigating his farm for non-existent threats. Meanwhile, DuPont's behavior was still becoming increasingly worse. He once ordered all treadmills to be removed from his property because he thought they were speaking to him. Hey, my Peloton bike speaks to me. It's like, hey, fatty, get on on the bike. As you walk by with like a mouthful of pizza rolls. (laughs) You just you just like use your foot to close the door and keep on walking. I'm with him on that one. Uh, Another time he intentionally drove his car into a pond, almost drowning his passenger. And from what I read, one, the passenger was like a higher up official from USA Wrestling that DuPont was just you know, acting odd and, and drove into the pond. And two, if it wasn't for DuPont being like a previous swimmer, because we, we said he was good, just not great for Olympic, that the guy would have died. But DuPont saved his life. That's great. It, it's and funny. Again, I, I, watched, it. I watched that documentary today. Apparently he got a loner when it happened. And the next day he drove it right back into the mm-hmm. pond again, like two days in a row. Just ridiculous behavior. <laughs> Another thing, like he bought an old 
tank from the United States government. You know, he was probably still, you know, the ammo business and all that. Mm-hmm. He bought a tank and they just rolled up onto his property with this big ass <laughs> tank that now, he now bought. He that, loved that repetitive stuff's interesting. Like, I think this guy's clearly showing signs of schizophrenia. Oh, yeah. The, but but it, uh, there was at this point, he was no family, really, because like, right. he didn't talk to extended. And then everyone else there was kind of essentially on his payroll and they liked him. But when they reached out, like he he would get crazy back to them, like, you know, and they didn't want to be kicked off the farm. Right. So it's, you know, who's going to do something? There's something to that with schizophrenia, with uh, repeating things. Remember Joseph Callinger would break out that guy's windows Go oh, like night. every day. Yeah, go back, go over yeah. and fix them for him. Then the That's same right. night he'd be yeah. out there breaking them again. Interesting. Yeah, and uh, like uh, John Manny Ramsey's dad, just breaking windows to get in the face <laughs> every day. You're like, motherfucker, you're like a millionaire. You get a front door. No, I'm going to break this window, dive in. And I'm not going to use the same hole next time. I'm going to go in another window. Middle of January in fucking Colorado. Uh so we talked about, you know, driving his car into the pond. And then another thing he did, which was worst of all, DuPont eventually told all the African-American wrestlers on his farm to leave as Foxcatcher was now becoming a KKK organization because DuPont felt the color black meant death. <laughs> oh, boy. Now, they didn't actually become a part of the KKK, <laughs> right. but in his, you know, sick mind, black in general just meant death. And he had... He had really good wrestlers training there that were African-American that, you know, he forced out of because of his own. Damn, sick bizarre. Brain. Yeah. Hmm. At the 19, the, and the, you know, talk a weird at the 1995 World Wrestling Championships, DuPont attended with the rest of Team Foxcatcher, but he distanced himself from everyone else and refused to speak with anyone who didn't address him directly as Dalai Lama. Throughout all these issues and DuPont's downward spiral in the early 90s, the one person he constantly trusted, other than Patrick Goodale, his age of security guard, was Dave Schultz. DuPont saw Schultz as his protector and friend, and no matter who else might be against him, there was no way Schultz could be a part of the conspiracy to kill him. And I think that goes back to just the kind of person Schultz was. He was always comforting the DuPont, uh, didn't really play into his fears, but would just tell him, hey, everything's okay. Mm -hmm. No one's out to get you. Uh, just a genuinely good guy who, you know, DuPont felt that kinship to, and he was the one guy he trusted. So whatever happens in the story through the end here, Dave's probably good because he's his one dude. And we'll touch on that next week in part three. (laughs) Ian has a boner. (laughs) Seth Rollins just walked out on the pay-per-view. Oh, boy. In October of 1995, DuPont approached one of... The wrestlers training at Foxcatcher, Dan Shade, as Shade was lifting weights, DuPont walked right up to Shade, pointed a machine gun at him and said, quote, don't fuck with me. I want you off this farm. Needless to say, Shade didn't argue. He left Foxcatcher and went straight to the Newtown Square police. However, the cops didn't take Shade seriously. They knew DuPont and liked him, obviously, and they wouldn't allow Shade to press charges or even file a complaint. Shade left town. And this was the last straw for several of the team Foxcatcher athletes. Uh, many of them approached USA Wrestling and asked that they cut ties with Foxcatcher, citing DuPont's behaviors as a major risk to, to the athletes. In the end, though, due in part to Schultz's defense of DuPont, as well as a $400,000 donation to USA Wrestling, 
They decided not to sever ties with Team Foxcatcher, and nothing was ever done about the incident between DuPont and Shade. Can you imagine you're in the gym lifting weights, and then he walks up to you with a machine gun pointed right at you? (laughs) Get the fuck out of here. He's got to write a check, though. And then writes a check. And then even Schultz stuck up for him. Well. You know. Money talks, bullshit walks, Mike. Am I right? About a month after Shade left Foxcatcher Farm, he returned one final time to pick up a van he had left at Schultz's house on the property. While there, he pleaded with with Schultz to leave the team. But Schultz felt he owed much of what he had to DuPont. Schultz was making a decent living, had a place to live, and was preparing to qualify for the 1996 Olympics. He chose not to leave. When DuPont learned that Shade had been back on the farm and at Schultz's house, he believed that Schultz was hiding Shade in his home and protecting him. DuPont showed up at Schultz's house one day, bombed out of his mind, and began accusing Schultz of hiding Shade somewhere in the home. DuPont felt betrayed. Like we said, this was the guy he trusted the most, it was Dave Schultz, and now he's, he's learning that the guy he just kicked off of his farm is back, and now he thinks Dave's hiding him. Kind of coordinating or planning the plot with the, the one guy he can trust. Right. I can break it down for you, Dave. As a Christian, it's like he's the Judas. Oh, okay. <laughs> you might get that. 30 pieces of silver. It's a Bible reference. Got it. Yeah. Got it. More of that on Bible Babble with your pal Day. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon.com. <laughs> DuPont trusted Schultz, and now, in his mind, Schultz was a traitor. Schultz, being the nice guy that he is, simply calmed the belligerent DuPont down and drove him back to his mansion. But now, the seeds had been planted in DuPont's mind. Not long after this incident, there was a party thrown by some of the wrestlers on the farm. Schultz, who was just relaxing from his training and trying to have a good time, began shooting off bottle rockets. This led to DuPont, who was at the party, to tell another wrestler that he knew someone was out to get him. And now he had just identified the threat. Oh, back up, DuPont, back up. (laughs) Oh, shit, DuPont, back up. (laughs) On January 26th, 1996, Dave Schultz was in his driveway on Foxcatcher Farm working on his car when he heard another vehicle pulling up. He turned to see DuPont driving up with Patrick Goodale, the head of security, sitting shotgun. As the window rolled down, Schultz smiled and waved and said, hey, coach. At this point, DuPont stuck his arm out the window, pointed a 44 revolver at Schultz, and asked him, you got a problem with me? Before Schultz had a chance to answer or even realize what was going on, DuPont pulled the trigger and shot at Schultz, hitting him in the elbow. Goodale yelled and asked DuPont what he was doing as DuPont fired a second shot at Schultz, which hit his chest and sent him face first into the snowy ground. Schultz's wife, Nancy, heard the shots and ran out of the home onto the porch just in time to see DuPont fire a third and final shot into Schultz's back. She rushed back into the house to call 911. How about the security guy takes the gun away from him? Not much of a security guy. No, yeah. <laughs> no. There, there are conspiracies <laughs> that, that people think that it was security that were in DuPont's mind that led him to do this. Mm. That they, they were the ones that like instigated all of this. Now, I'm not, you know, I don't know if any of that is true or how much merit there is to that. But yeah. there is people that, that think that. But I think it also happened quick. And, you know, he didn't he didn't take the gun away, which maybe he should have. But he's also sitting right next to him in the car. Yeah. I don't know. But, yeah, that would have been nice. But he was he was also DuPont security. He wasn't anybody else's security. How do you, you know? Well, but still, I mean, you would think you would save somebody's life and you'd yeah. be protecting your client by taking the gun away from him. <laughs> Just my opinion. I could be wrong. I don't disagree. 
On the phone with the Newtown Square police, Nancy tried to explain what had happened. But when she mentioned that DuPont was involved, the dispatcher dispatcher almost didn't seem to believe her. She was asked repeatedly if it was an accident or intentional and why DuPont would do something like this. She finally yelled hysterically into the phone. He's insane. Mm, that's weird. Mm. Cops didn't <laughs> like, hmm, what do you mean? He's a good dude. And, and could possibly be committing a crime. I, I don't think they hesitated to send <clears throat> to dispatch people there. Right. right but, right. you know, just the questioning. And uh, you can hear parts of the 911. We tried to find it. Ian, I know you look, too. We can't find the full 911 mm. call. But like just repeatedly, like, who did this? Why would they do that? Yeah. Was this on? Are you sure? Was this an accident? You know, meanwhile, she just saw her husband j- get shot. And is laying, you know, in the snow, dying. Mm, that's like Nicole Simpson when the dispatcher's like, oh, you mean the, uh, the <laughs> right. TV broadcaster? Are you sure about that? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's right. Yeah. Meanwhile, back outside, Goodale managed to get out of the car and pulled one of his guns out at DuPont. So oh, there you go. Okay. All right. The two engaged in a brief standoff before DuPont lowered his arm, threw his gun in the back seat and turned the car around, speeding off back to his mansion. At this point, Nancy rushed back outside into Schultz's body. He was still alive, but barely. She told him she loved him and heard him exhale one last time, and he died in her arms. She noticed on the back of his hand was written, pick up kids, as he had wrote on his hand as a reminder to himself that he had to pick up his kids that day from school. Mm. After returning to the mansion after the shooting, DuPont barricaded himself in his library, which he had reinforced as a bomb shelter. Of course he did. (laughs) A lot of the news reports I watched trying to find that 911 call were about this whole barricading. It was like news reports during this whole. Yeah. And this is I feel like people might know the story, but they don't realize like kind of what happened after the fact, which is what we're about to get into. But like, yeah, he went back to his mansion, barricaded himself in. The library, which he turned into a bomb shelter, obviously was not cooperating with the police who had arrived on the farm. Uh, Could be speculated that they, uh, you know, were not as aggressive as they typically would be with a typical, you know, suspect of a shooting. Was anyone else in the house at this point? In his house? Yeah. No. Um, Nobody was living in the house. And he only you were only allowed to go to the mansion if you were invited. Mm. So wrestlers would only show if he invited. And there's audio of negotiators talking to him on the phone. Oh, yeah. And stuff. Yeah. And he's going on about how it's holy ground and this Mm. is uh, against his rights and they have no they have no legal right to be there. And just really not not making any sense at this point. Um, Police claimed they were not attacking the home or apprehending him out of caution because they knew DuPont had a very large collection of firearms and they were trying to avoid a shootout. Eventually, 70 officers, 30 of whom were SWAT team, surrounded his home. DuPont had enough food and water stocked up to survive weeks. And like Dave, you said, phone conversations with negotiators failed to bring an end to the standoff as DuPont would just ramble on about how he needs people off of his holy ground. Uh, and and I mean, SWAT guys live for this shit. I mean, yeah. get, get the fuck out of here. Right. And they're not kicking in windows. Yeah. I mean, in Christmas vacation, they kick in a window <laughs> when they think there's a simple abduction of fucking, uh, you know, his boss. Yeah. Someone's given a stand down order here that, you know, yeah. come on. Meanwhile, this guy's just there in his library. Eh, fucking around, doing whatever. Yeah. Um, he was also on the phone with his attorney a bunch throughout this time, not understanding why he couldn't make this problem go away. Uh, just, you know, saying, give them money, pay them off or tell them it's me. Uh-huh. Why won't they go away? Why are they, why are they bothering me? Another uber wealthy guy, like yeah. shocked at the, you know, right. When he can't make everything go away. Actual consequences for his actions. 
but there is part of me that like I'm not sure he realized what he did. Mm. Maybe it's like that growing up rich and people need to be able to do this to buy everything in life. Yeah. Mixed with mental illness. With the, just and, make something like murder seem like I'll right. buy out of it. And by no means mm-hmm. am I sticking up for John DuPont. I think he's a piece of shit, you know, person. And Dave Schultz was an awesome guy. But I think in at this time, DuPont truly didn't realize like I just killed the one guy that I trusted. Yeah. Why is everyone coming after me? And that in his mind, he couldn't he couldn't understand. Anyways, eventually police shut down the boilers to his mansion and cut his power. So remember, this was Pennsylvania in the middle of January. It got freezing in the home really quick. And on the phone, DuPont cut a deal with negotiators where they would let him exit the home to go to his garden house where the boilers were so that he could fix the boilers, turn them back on and get his heat restored. Well, when he exited the home to do this, six SWAT team members moved in and arrested him. After 50 hours, the standoff ended. 50 hours, whatever. 50 hours, this guy. His stun grenades would be going through our windows with tear gas in like right. 20 minutes. Right. <laughs> Fuck off. And what's crazy, like, this was an Olympic athlete, an Olympic gold medal athlete who was killed. Like, this was big American news. hero, if you will. This was a big news story. This wasn't just some guy shooting another guy and one of them happened to be rich. Yeah. You know, Dave Schultz was well known. The negotiators, when he called or when they talked to him and made that deal that he could go turn his heat back on, like, sure thing, pal. Yeah. Go ahead. All right, crank it. that boiler up. It must have got shut <laughs> off. All right. We will allow that. <laughs> but then you must come out within one day. <laughs> and even still, like, uh, I, you know, when the, the SWAT team members approached him, they like told him to freeze. He turned and looked and then tried to run back, but then saw them like pull their guns and then mm. like just stopped and gave in. So the next month in February of 1996 at a court hearing, it was determined that DuPont would stand trial for murder, but he would first have to be evaluated to make sure he was competent enough to do so. He was denied bail due to the two day standoff he had with the police. Over the next several months, DuPont was pretty much uncooperative with the psychiatrists and psychologists who tried to assess him. In September of 1996, DuPont was ruled incompetent to stand trial as experts testified that he was psychotic and he could not participate in his own defense. He was ordered to a mental hospital and his condition was to be reviewed by the court in three months. One of the defense's expert psychiatric witnesses described DuPont as a paranoid schizophrenic who believed Schultz was part of an international conspiracy to kill him. He said DuPont believed people would break into his house and kill him and that he had installed a variety of security features in his house. After receiving some treatment in December of 1996, DuPont was found competent enough to stand trial, which would begin in January of 1997, almost one year to the date of the shooting. DuPont's attorneys formally entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. The insanity defense, however, was thrown out by the court, and on February 25th, 1997, a jury found DuPont guilty of third-degree murder but mentally ill, which meant the sentencing would be referred to a judge, Patricia Jenkins. She could have sentenced DuPont to anywhere from 5 to 40 years in prison, but on May 13th, 1997, DuPont was sentenced to 13 to 30 years incarceration and was sent to the State Correctional Institution, Mercer, a minimum security institution in the Pennsylvania prison system. 13 to 30 is a bit odd. Like that's just kind of uh it's pretty random. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's weird sentencing guidelines. I'm going to send you to jail from one to a hundred years. And we'll see. <laughs> right. See how you do, pal. Now, we'll see, Gypsy. I'll take your tears. <laughs> Uh, DuPont's attorneys filed an appeal, but in 2000, the United States Supreme Court upheld the verdict. In January of 2009, DuPont was denied parole, and on December 9th, 2010, DuPont died while in prison from chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, commonly known as COPD, at the age of 72. After his murder trial ended, Nancy Schultz filed a wrongful death suit against DuPont. The amount of the settlement was never officially disclosed, but it's been rumored that Nancy received at least $35 million from DuPont. Nancy would then go on to found the Dave Schultz Wrestling Club so that the wrestlers who had left Foxcatcher had a place to train and continue, uh, you know, on their path for Olympic and world championships. She would also assist them in raising the money they needed to continue to train. As the entire wrestling community mourned the death of the beloved Schultz, the athletes gathered in Atlanta, Georgia for the 1996 Olympic Games. Many of the wrestlers dedicated their performances to Schultz. Nancy Schultz attended the games with her children, Alex, who was nine at the time, and Danielle, who was six. In a time of healing, she was greeted and embraced by wrestlers from all over the world who stopped by to pay their respects and share their memories of Schultz. This was Nancy's way of finding closure and how she felt was the best way to say goodbye to her husband. Prior to the start of that year's games, Wrestler Kurt Angle, who considered Schultz his friend and mentor, told the media, quote, I know Dave is with me. I can feel him and it gives me strength. Angle would go on to win a gold medal that year with a broken frickin neck. <laughs> and he dedicated his win to Dave Schultz with a broken neck. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And that's his famous line is with a broken frickin neck. <laughs> so that's the story of the murder of Dave Schultz. This was the Olympics that he was supposed to be at and make his his comeback. And everyone said he looked primed. Mm. He looked good. He was older up there in age, but yeah, he was ready yeah. to go. And, uh, you know, his life was taken. It's a shame. Kurt Angle's first. So Kurt Angle then ended up signing with the WWE and began wrestling for them in late 1999. And Kurt recently said his entire first year in the company, he wore a singlet that was the exact singlet that uh, style that Dave Schultz wore when he won, like, I believe, his Olympic gold medal mm. as a tribute to Schultz. That's cool. interesting. Yeah. So I don't know. Crazy different story. And DuPont ended up leaving most of his estate to some Bulgarian wrestler guy. A Bulgarian wrestler that, like, just random. Like, they met at a world championship. Yeah. They were close. And that Bulgarian wrestler was close with the Schultz family. They yeah. lived on Foxcatcher Farm. Their kids grew up together. But they said, uh, I, it might be in the Netflix, the Team Foxcatcher documentary. After Dave died, the, the Bulgarian wrestler just, they kind of disappeared from the family. They didn't really hear from them ever again. Mm. Maybe because, you know, DuPont left them his fortune. But, yeah, like their kids grew up together and they they, they were good friends. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, it's like a little community there on Foxcatcher Farm. Yeah. There's all those houses. It sounded great, and, yeah. You know, the wrestlers are living in homes or in dorms and stuff like that. And, you know, if you got invited to the mansion, you could. And I think Kurt Angle told a story on his, his podcast recently where uh, he was in. He got invited to the mansion. They were eating pizza and like. DuPont came to him and was and 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 said something like, Kurt, I know you hide in these walls at night. <laughs> and, and he's like, I just want you to know I know. And Kurt's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I'm just trying to eat some pizza, <laughs> you know, have a cheat meal. And then I'm going to go back and start training. <laughs> right. You know, just stuff like that, like random 
crazy stuff. You know, mm. he'd invite you to the mansion and then he'd make you watch hours of footage. <laughs> and they said it would literally be of the trees on his property for like hours of watching the trees. And, and DuPont was convinced there were shadows and figures in there hiding. And they're like, there's there's nothing well, there. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. It's blowing in the wind. <laughs> That's why. That's why you watch that footage. I guess so. Well, <laughs> someone should have smartened Dave up to that, I guess. What's well, that? It's a sad story. Uh, unchecked mental illness. That's uh, what can happen, I guess. Yeah. And, and, you're just, and watching like there's home videos of like Dave Schultz with his kids. And he's just like the ultimate family guy. Like he just yeah. looks like a cool dude. And then you watch the Foxcatcher movie with Steve Carell and like, uh, which one I call it plays him. Um, Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo. Like he's like the most likable guy, yeah. you know, you could ever want to hang out with. Yeah. Like he's just such a sweet, caring guy. The movie focuses a lot on Channing Tatum, who plays Mark Schultz. Uh, did you see the movie? No, no. I didn't see it. Don't watch it. Not because good. you don't want to see Steve Carell. No, it's okay. The document, the Foxcatcher documentary on Netflix is the best. You don't want to see Steve Carell as a piece of shit. Yeah. At least I don't. I want to see him making shitty jokes in an office and, you know, getting himself and <laughs> getting himself in debauchery and hijinks ensue. Um, but anyways, I don't know. I think it's an interesting flip on unchecked mental illness. A lot of times you get, uh, I don't know, guys like Richard Chase or people that didn't have access to it yeah and just when you have money like that and you're padded it's a different sense of like loneliness like you're not you're not like the the lowest part of the social class you're the upper part but you've distanced yourself from everyone plus you're kind of awkward so you have no real friends and then just because of the family around you and that that padding i don't know what i'm trying to say a little bit at that it's just like, a different outcome. And the only yeah. and, and like, I think the people that reached out to him, I think, thought it was more of like an alcohol or drug thing as opposed to mental health. And and he was never going to admit to any of that. Probably even mental health either. But, right. you know, it, the only ones that were reaching out were the ones who he was literally, you know, taking care of to yeah. be there. So very odd. I wonder how early on this stuff started for him. Yeah, that's yeah. what we were talking earlier. Like we didn't yeah. know till like the 30s at l- or till he was in his 30s at least. But and do you think often it's an embarrassment for the family where they're like they don't want to acknowledge it, they just brush it under the rug because someone you know with our stature doesn't you know wouldn't be afflicted with this kind of problem. That, that's kind of what I was yeah what I was trying to get at. Yeah, so you it know, goes unchecked. Like Richard Chase's mom unchecked it, mm-hmm. and then now you have like this guy whose family probably didn't check it because embarrassing like you yep. said yep but then it's a whole different problem because he has access to yeah right. millions of dollars right right sure well yeah too because then what are you gonna do like back in that day you don't send him to a mental institution that's below them right like you don't do anything like that mm-hmm. and and realistically I my mean, mental institutions were not great back then so I, I don't know that yeah it's interesting like what might they have known or seen mm-hmm. the guy was this you know, crazy. He'd go in his backyard and just start shooting off guns just randomly. There's video of him, like just shooting like, you know, machine guns and assault rifles off off his back patio into nothing while people just film him. Hmm. I know I say it every time we talk about this, but like statistically, people with schizophrenia or like severe mental illness aren't violent. But when there's all those warning signs there and things are getting progressively worse. Yeah. If they don't get help, that's right. Because right, he, he felt he was being attacked. So right. he needed, you know, there was a threat somewhere. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. It's a sad story. 
All right, you guys got anything else with uh, the murder of Dave Schultz, Team Foxcatcher? I got the difference between freestyle and Greco-Roman, if you guys Hell like yeah. to hear it. Let's hear it. I'm interested to see if I'm right. All right. Freestyle is different from Greco-Roman simply because Greco-Roman does not allow scoring below the waist. No leg attacks or trips. The main difference between freestyle and folk style is that in freestyle competition, you do not do anything while you're on the bottom besides trying not to get turned. So that, that makes make sense. So there's no you're, like you're not going to shoot on someone's legs in Greco-Roman. So that That's, makes sense with UFC the when they hold somebody yeah. up against the cage. You're only going upper so body go. them down. Okay. Whew. Glad we could clear that up for everyone. Greco-Roman sounds just intense then. Like just it's like eye to eye with the guy the whole time. I feel like those are like really strong guys. Yeah, probably. That you can just stand there and push against right. each other. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for clearing that up, Dave. People mm-hmm. have been wondering this mm-hmm. whole episode, I think. Oh, I know. Ian, any final thoughts? Uh, no, good episode. Hey, I good like job, it. Mike. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for doing that. I hope people enjoyed it. Uh, patron shout outs. We got uh, a few new patrons this week. Thank you very much to Lauren Huey, Catherine Marie Schusler, Andy Birkin, Patty Patty C, Hat P. Roy, or Hey P. Roy, Kristen Wetzel, Bailey Sensabaugh, Blake C., uh, this one kind of came out funky in the uh, notes, but Ulrika Purvison. We'll try our best with that one. I might owe an apology on that. Brody <laughs> Ro- Robertson, Dalton Jolis or Jolies, Nathan Mauday, Jose Solis, Nikki B, Sophie Maslin, Chelsea Connor, Michael Carrillo, and Tabor DeRoyne. We are at patreon.com slash Necronomapod. Thank you guys very much. Ian, what do you got? For iTunes, I have one for MCMR94, uh, Guitar Freak 22. They want to know if you watch AEW, Mike. Mm. Uh, what is it? What is the name? Uh, Guitar Freak 22. Uh, well, Mr. Freak 22. <laughs> I like <laughs> AEW, but we usually record on Wednesday nights, so I don't get to often see it. But I'll tune in when I can, and then we watch the pay-per-view sometimes. I like it. I like AEW. Yeah. Good answer, Mike. Yeah. That's a truthful answer. Yeah. Also, yeah. didn't even make anything up. <laughs> and Manda Batch. Thank you guys for the awesome reviews. She is a batch. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, what do you got? I don't have a thing. Not a single thing. Not a single solitary thing. Hmm. He, he, he blew his load with that Greco-Roman. That's all I had. That was the last of his I got that out, and now I'm taking a nap. On the Sunday night. And you're about to watch Roman Reigns and Edge go for the <laughs> WWE Universal Championship. Now I'm going to kick you guys out, and I'm going to bed. <laughs> so, all right. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, at Necronomapod, uh, Patreon.com slash Necronomapod, Amazon.com, search Necronomapod. We appreciate you guys listening, and... Uh, Check you later. All right. You guys ready for a cool down beer? Cheers. <laughs>